0: Welcome to Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast, where we are amplifying the Black adoption conversation with Black adoptee voices and Black families at the center.
1: We're your hosts, Dr. Sam and Sandria, two Black adoptees adopted by Black families still trying to make sense of our adoption journeys.
0: We have all been touched by adoption, whether we realize it or not. You just don't hear our stories until now.
1: Every birth has a story.
0: So So let's let's go go Black
1: Black to the beginning. Welcome Black to the beginning, everybody. It is Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast. I am Sandria. And I'm Dr. Sam. I've noticed that I sing my name. I... I like it. I hope y'all like it too,
2: because- I was wondering, <laughs> do I need to sing my name too? <laughs> right.
1: Maybe, <laughs> look, right, three-part harmony. We got uh-huh. you, we got you. So as you all have heard, there is another voice on the line and we are so excited to be in conversation with tonight's guest, not only because he is a phenomenal person doing great work in the adoption space, and the adoptee space, but he has an amazing story so he has a story that can make you laugh that can make you cry that can make you say wow and these are the types of stories that he helps other adoptees tell he is the creator of who am i really podcast as well as the author of who am i really an adoptee memoir please welcome to the show damon Davis.
2: thank you so much i appreciate you guys having me here it's really great to be with you all thank you
1: yes no it's awesome to to have a fellow podcaster so you know <laughs> if the tables turn and you want to interview us
2: You oh, don't you watch be, out
1: i might <laughs> you know all, all of the mics are hot so
2: <laughs> for sure
1: you know, your, your story is so incredible. So I'll, I'll start by saying that I read your memoir. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to jump ahead of myself because mm-hmm. there are so many amazing nuggets that I'm sure our listeners probably don't know unless they've read the book. And I, and I hope that you all will read the book if you haven't already. But I want to lay some context before we get into your amazing search and Reunion stories, plural, (laughs) uh, because you have a lot of experience in search and reunion. So so we're excited to share that. But let's set the scene. If you can just describe for us how you grew up with your parents, Willie and Veronica, and growing up in this very special city of Columbia, Maryland.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I was born in 1972. And I was raised by my adoptive parents, Willie and Veronica, in Columbia, Maryland. And, you know, Columbia was a planned city. It was sort of mixture of different socioeconomic strata, mixture of uh, various ethnic and racial backgrounds. It was really intended to be an intentionally mixed area to show sort of what the world could be like uh, if we got over some of our differences. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. And, and as an adoptee, you know, My mother was light skinned and my dad was darker skinned, both African-American like myself, and I was in the middle. So we looked like we could be family. And this is one of the things that I often think about with adoptees is especially those who are either interracial themselves or in a transracial adoption. There are frequently sort of, you know, questions, thoughts, reminders, triggers as to the fact that you were adopted, you know, so. Had my parents been, say, one white, one black, both white, what have you, and I remained who I am, I think it would be much more of a trigger to feel adoption on a daily basis mm-hmm. versus how I grew up, which was feeling pretty comfortable because we kind of looked like family. I mean, ironically, my birthday is October 14th. My mom's birthday was October 8th. My dad's birthday is October 17th. Like, it just mm-hmm all fit together very nicely. And so I grew up feeling very comfortable in what we would call well-adjusted in adoption. And I feel very fortunate for that because I know a lot of people don't live that reality. Um, I ended up sort of graduating high school, moving on to college, and I chose a Black university. I went to Hampton University out of Columbia. And That was a unique experience for me because I had gone from what was a very racially mixed environment to a homogenous environment of all people that looked like you and me. And it was eye-opening because I had grown up around a gang of white people. So I knew how to communicate in a way that would, you know, sort of endear myself to certain people in certain crowds. But I had not really had a significant Black experience. And so Hampton University was a very sort of powerful and moving time for me. So Columbia and my up- upbringing were just, you know, really, really um, important times in my life, but also very sort of um, interesting and in how they molded me into who I ended up becoming.
1: You mentioned a couple of things that I want to touch on, but while we're talking about your your HU experience, did you feel like you had to do some level of code switching when you got there? Or did you feel kind of immediately like, okay, these, these are my people. Like I, I feel comfortable in this new reality as well.
2: Yeah, it was it was interesting that there was a bit of code switching be- and, and that was primarily because my friend group in high school, I played soccer and lacrosse. Like I had a bunch of white guys that I was friends with. I had a bunch of black friends too. But a lot of my friends were white. And it wasn't until I went to college and I had all Black friends at college that I came home and actually looked at and examined the racial makeup of my friend group. Mm. I had never contemplated it before. And I, I will often joke that I had sort of this awakening where I went to school. So, to give a backstory, I went to visit Hampton at uh, a break. It was like, it was over the summer. So, the campus was completely empty. So it was a black school with no black students on the campus. Mm-hmm. So when I showed up and there's all these black students, I was like, whoa, everybody's black. You know, it just wasn't, I knew what I was getting myself into, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Right,
0: right. Then
2: I had been there for a while. I went back home and I was like, yo, all my friends are white. And it was just a really interesting sort of moment of realizing where i was in the world and how i had been relating to others and therefore there was some code switching you know there was there were cats like me that had come from very you know predominantly white areas and that had been you know in very you know mixed relationships and all kinds of other stuff and then there were you know folks that had come from all black neighborhoods and you know wherever they were from in the united states and it was just perfectly natural for them to be where they were in the group that they were and so there were a lot of people, I think, who went through um, some racial awakenings. And, and it, was, it was just really fascinating to see how you grew in that college experience that wasn't about the education.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder for transracial adoptees that are listening to this story, whether or not they can also empathize with the Black adoptee who has also had a white experience. And I think we had this conversation um, with one of our transracial um, adoptees that had been on the podcast before, where there's this mindset that because of their transracial experience, almost like Black folks such as ourselves don't relate. But when you're going through a formal adoption process, or at least historically, It has been one where the adoptive parents tend to have higher socioeconomic status. They're able to provide a certain lifestyle that others may not be accustomed to. As such, you find yourself in situations where there might be a different like diverse setting where Mm -hmm. it wouldn't otherwise be. And so now here you are with this diverse experience and you come into an all-Black experience like, okay, not completely a fish out of water, mm-hmm. but when you, when you switch like that, it's like, whoa. Yep. And so I would just want, like, for transracial adoptees to understand that even as just straight-up Black folks adopted by Black people, your environment can dictate how you embrace your own Blackness, and that we go through identity struggles as well that's right coming into you know homogenous situations
2: yeah Yeah.
0: Digital identity issues
2: yeah it's a it's a really good point and i had not thought about that from that angle before but you're absolutely correct that we all have our various angles through which we discover or struggle with or identify with our racial identity and for Mm -hmm. as you've said the transracial adoptee starts almost from day one or whenever the adoption sort of happens. You're now in an environment that doesn't look like you with your parents, right? And so, you know, the picture on the wall is going to show the family together and you will be the person of a different color. And and it's often thought that, you know, it's better to have multiple, you know, sort of in. uh, transracial adoptees in the same space. You've got, you know, perhaps I'm just going to name sort of scenarios that I've seen before, white parents with an Asian adoptee, a Black adoptee, and, you know, you name some other culture or heritage. And it's thought that because the people are all different, then nobody's different. But Mm -hmm. the truth is, we're all individuals. And we tend to identify with people who look like us, feel like us, you know, do some similar things, have similar interests. And so if everybody's different in some scenarios, everybody is different and it doesn't feel, it still doesn't feel as welcoming perhaps as it was intended to be.
1: Yeah, and something that I think this touches on, especially when you talk about the transracial adoptee, this uh, concept of mirroring. So a transracial adoptee won't necessarily have that mirroring. But I think in the cases of black adoptees adopted into black families or you know any adoptee adopted into a family of the same race, there's a difference between the mirroring and matching. So like you're a child of the 70s, I'm a child of the 80s, and even in 1980, adoption agencies were still doing matching. So as as an adoptive parent, you could look through a book or be presented with babies who look like they could blend into your family. So the way that you're kind of this in the middle mix between your mom and your dad, matching was a thing. But I think something that sometimes gets lost in the conversation is that matching and mirroring aren't necessarily the same thing. So yes, I was raised with Black parents, Black cousins, Black family, Black neighborhoods, all of that. But there is something very unique about meeting someone who mirrors what you look like biologically. Like that, it's a different thing. So yes, you can be around people who look like you but they don't really look <laughs> yeah, like that's right. until you see it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, I was fortunate in that I did very much look like I could have been my parents' child. But as you were speaking, I was thinking of a couple of guests whom I've spoken to of African descent. One of them, mixed race, one of them uh, was was Black. And, you know, the second one said she was in a family where she was darker than some of the people in her family. And, you know, we've got some internal struggles with shades of our own color. And so folks in, in, you know, it goes with the texture of your hair, the color of your skin, all of this within the black community, you know, sort of a little bit of race bias against, against one another. And as an adoptee, she did say that she felt like there was a bias against her because of her own skin color, even though she was in a black family. And that it was perceived that she was jealous of her adopted mother because her adopted mother was lighter or what have you there. The, the gentleman who I alluded to the first adoptee was uh, an interracially born man. His mother was white. His father was black, his biologicals. And uh, he grew up in a far North Canadian lumber town. And he's, you know, sort of describes himself as this giant guy. He's like six foot two, this, you know, interracial black guy in a lumber town. And you can imagine a lumber town and up there is full of, you know, a lot of sort of first nation and white people. So he was very much out of place. And this goes to the mirroring that you were talking about, that when he ended up seeing his mother and his, his birth mother and his biological father, he was able to then identify components of himself and that's one of the things that I think adoptees struggle a lot with is what part of me do I get from you, biological person? And if you don't know them yet, like, how are we related here? Like, my, if I am, you know, a math guy and a science dude and my family are a bunch of athletes, we don't mirror, right? If I'm super tall and they're relatively short, we don't mirror, There's a lot of different traits that you could name that make it so that a person is reminded how much different they are. If I'm an extrovert and my parents are super quiet and not really into sort of hanging out and being social, we're very different. We don't mirror. And that can be incredibly challenging for people to try to reconcile as they try to get along with their family. There's always this constant tension between how much we're not alike and how uncomfortable that feels to me as the adoptee.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like in your situation, you were pretty comfortable. So even without that biological mirroring, you felt very engrafted into your family.
2: 100%, um, yeah. And
1: you mentioned like not feeling adopted. And I want to just kind of zone in on that word, like this feeling, um, like how you were able to have that very comfortable sense of identity. How was adoption presented to you? How was it treated within your family?
2: It's a really good question. And, you know, fortunately for me, I was told that I was adopted from a very young age. So I grew up with the knowledge. And I think that that's an incri- a critical thing for parents to think through is telling a child as early as possible, not making a big deal of it, but making it part of the conversation and being comfortable with it right? This is how your family was formed. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to avoid it. We're not going to pretend that you came for me and all this other stuff. That's not, that doesn't work. And allowing the adoptee to grow up with the knowledge that there's adoption, but that they're loved. And one of the things that I give my parents high praise for was they were really affectionate folks. My mom, she just smothered me with hugs and really kissy (laughs) and Lots of praise. You know what I mean? You know, I'm screwing up. There wasn't any praise coming, but (laughs) I'm saying like when it was appropriate and it was, you know, the good nights, the good mornings, the hugs, the, you know, be good when you go out. You know, I worry about you when you're out, you know, just the the genuine investment in a child that any parent should be giving uh, was exactly what I got. And, And I think that that was incredibly important because let's say there was not as much hugging and kissing and praising you know, as an adopted person, you might think to yourself, oh, maybe this doesn't feel right because I'm adopted. You know what I mean? Maybe, you know, maybe they wish they had another child, like every thought that you've ever had about why you were put up for adoption, whether you're getting along appropriately with your family, etc., might be magnified, amplified in your mind if you're not getting that kind of loving care. And I will say too, I've spoken to guests who have also said, that they did get some of that from their parents. Yet, you know, they didn't like how their mother smelled. You know what I mean? Like they didn't like how their mother approached it. And that is probably because there was this disconnect between the infant or the child and the actual mother, the biological mother. And, and you know, it, it just wasn't a match in, in the way that, you know, people had hoped it would be in terms of making that, making that adoption happen. So there's a lot of different sort of pluses and minuses to how people are raised, but I give full credit to my parents for being absolute loving, wonderful people. And and that well, warm, welcoming, loving sort of environment it helped me to feel very confident in who I am and, and, and who I am as an adoptee.
0: So earlier in the conversation, you made mention that you grew up in a well-adjusted family. Mm-hmm. Can you, one, speak to that, like, what does that mean, right? Like outside of the love, the hugs, you know, all of that that you just described, right? Mm -hmm. But even thinking on what you just stated, which other adoptees can grow up in that same sort of thing and not feel connected at all. So Mm -hmm. my first question is really around, like, what does well-adjusted
2: family look like to you? Uh, You know, it's really what I described. It was the sort of nurturing environment that I got it was the similarity between us you know I described as we're all Libras in my family um there was just a lot of strong enough similarities that I didn't feel the differences between us um it just for me the well-adjusted part came from how well we did match how well I was accepted and loved you know how they tried to be the best parents they could be. Now, they landed in divorce, but that wasn't because of me. That was because their relationship was not working. And we navigated that, you know, to the best of our ability as a family. Um, but the the well-adjusted part came from that ongoing nurturing of a son that you've brought into your home, into your world, and and continued to Sort of invest in.
0: And the reason why I asked you about that as well is to dig in a little bit more on what you spoke of, which was like the components of the self. And so, were there ever points in time, even though you grew up in this well adjusted space with parents that loved you despite circumstances, um, that you ever did not feel as if? you were fully connected, or were there times where it came back to your, you know, mind, it's like, I am adopted
2: here, Mm -hmm. you
0: know, And, and how did that impact you?
2: Yeah, you know, it was rare, but every once in a while, it would, and so it came out in a couple of different ways. I remember, I would be out with my dad. My love, my dad loved to hang out. He was a people person. Like you wanted to hang out with my dad. Cause he was just a fun, gregarious, really happy guy. And he would take me to, you know, restaurants and bars. And we would hang out with his friends and things like that. And every once in a while he would meet someone and say, hey, Oh, is this your son? You know, and, and they would look at us and they would say things like, Oh man, you guys look just alike, you know? And it was funny to me because as well-intended as the comment was, it's triggering, right? I know we're not alike. I know we don't look alike, right? And I've, I've often said, though, that on a more positive note, I feel like what that person was seeing was our similar energy, you know, same bright smiles and gregarious, outgoing, sort of engaging personalities I believe were probably things that you could just detect between the two of us and so we sort of quote unquote looked alike because we presented ourselves in similar ways and it's probably because I was modeling myself after him Mm -hmm. Um, but the other sort of not as positive way that it would come out I remember very distinctly my, my mother we had an argument one day and and it haunts me that I even went down this road but she said something about our family and i i can't remember what she said but it was related to being adopted and i spat back well maybe you shouldn't have and it was like the most awful thing i could have said i i mean it when i say it again it just you know you you can't reel your words back and i wish i could but it was just awful and but but it but that means that it was there right that in a moment of anger, irritation, whatever, I pulled this out of my back pocket, which means it was there to be pulled. And, and that I think is, is also a challenge is is, to go back to your well-adjusted thing. You can only be so well-adjusted if you're willing to reach in your back pocket and pull this thing out. It's there, you know?
1: Listen, you just spoke a whole word with that. If you can pull something out, that means it was there to be pulled. Like yeah. that in itself is a sermon because a lot of times we'll think things are hidden or beneath the surface, but those things that bubble up that come out, they're they're there. You couldn't pull from it if it wasn't, if it wasn't there. Yes. Oh my goodness. So I want to transition a little bit because it sounds like as far as a search and reunion for for your birth family, that wasn't really on your radar. Like you were very comfortable and content with your family. You were an only child, you had loving parents, all of these amazing experiences as a child and young adult. So it, it sounds like you weren't really interested in going down that path was that the case
2: absolutely i was not interested at all you know people would ask me when i I was very open about admitting that i was adopted and people would say well do you ever want to find your quote-unquote real parents because they didn't have the language to to ask the question in a sensitive way and i would always say no because i got two parents i don't need two more you know what (laughs) i'm saying like there's there wasn't any reason for me to seek out other people but Transitionally what happened for me were three things. One, the birth of my son, Seth, was hugely impactful. And when I spoke with my social worker later about this, she said that women tend to look earlier, search, initiate a search earlier, and men tend to initiate a search after they've had a child. And and I've theorized that women can think about having children earlier, you know, because you can produce life. Mm-hmm. And so just the natural, like, why is this happening to my body? Oh, because your body's preparing for child rearing. That is, that is the conversation that you could have as early as, you know, eight, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12, and on. And so your thoughts of motherhood, and then wait, if I could be a mother, then where is my mother as an adopted woman, right? And then men, it's just Let's be honest, we're not usually as sensitive and thoughtful as as women are. (laughs) So it's probable that we don't really like it doesn't hit us until it truly hits us in the form of an infant. So my son's birth was massively impactful. And I, I can remember, you know, when I was home with him, I was unemployed at the time. I was lucky to be home with him and and really creating a bond. And I'm hovering over this little dude, just looking at him and He's kicking and waving his hands and all this stuff. And and I just started crying. I was like, yo, this is the first blood relative I have ever known in my entire life. And we made this dude together. It was just mind blowing. Mm -hmm. The other two things that happened were my father-in-law was in town. He had a relative in Baltimore, Maryland, about 30 minutes from, from here. And we went to visit this elderly woman. She opens the door. She's dragging an oxygen tank behind her, like she's clearly in the autumn of her life. And she sits down and she pulls out boxes of artifacts, you know, like photos and letters, and you know she can tell you all of this family history, like a griot. And she would, and she would relate it. You know, to my wife's name's Michelle. Michelle, when you were in college here, your father was over here doing this. But your uncle was over there doing that. Like she knew it all. And I'm looking at this woman going, wow, there's somebody in my biological family who knows all these stories. And I don't know who she is. And if she dies before I get to her, all these stories are gone. I'm looking at all of these artifacts spread out on the table. And I said, if anybody else sat here at this table and spread this stuff out the same exact way, they could never replicate the stories that she just did. So that was a very sort of resonant moment for me. And then the third thing that happened was I started to lose my adopted mother to mental illness. She had been working for years and years and years, and she retired. And when she retired, unfortunately, I feel like her paranoid schizophrenia really sort of was able to come roaring forward. She didn't have the routinized day that she had previously when she would get up, get herself ready, go to work, perform professionally, come home and take care of herself. The whole thing was gone. And so just unfortunately, um, I started to lose her in that way. And one of my dear friends, Kelly, said to me, you know, you should start looking for your biological mother. You know, she could see that I was hurt by this loss of my own mom. And and I had to stop and really think hard. And I, I looked in the mirror one day and absolutely asked myself, are you trying to find this other woman for the right reason? Are you trying to find her because you want to know her or because you're trying to replace your adopted mother? And that was a critical thought process for me because I wanted to do it for the right reason. If I looked for one person to, to replace another, if they don't replace her, then it doesn't work out. But if I'm looking for her because I want to find her, know her and understand sort of my own story and journey, that's different. And that will, going on that search will serve its proper purpose. If I'm going, looking for one person to replace another, those relationships never work out.
1: Mm -hmm. I saw Dr. Sam almost do like a, like a (laughs) praise jump when you were talking about that moment that you had with your son, Seth, and like being in the realization, like, wow, this is my first time seeing a blood relative, mm-hmm. just the, the, how profound that is. I don't know if you want to speak to that because she, she's experienced that moment. As soon as you said
0: it, I was like, that is precisely how I felt. And for anyone listening that may be outside of the black adoption experience, the adoptee experience, when you don't have these pieces to your puzzle, to understanding your life. When you decide to create your own family and you look at this person, or even as a woman, like as your belly begins to grow and that person comes out and you're like, whoa, yeah. this person belongs to me, they're their blood to me. And I've shared this previously, um, maybe in a different podcast or even an interview, but there was a point, and Damon, let me know if this happened for you, but there was a point in time where my daughter looked completely like my husband. And when I tell you, I was pissed. (laughs) Pissed. Because I felt like I know what the Coleman's look like. Samantha has no idea what she looks like in somebody else's face. Now, mind you, about five years later, she began to morph into me. That's her mini me now. That's my little mini me now. <laughs> but I feel like no one understood that like underneath them like, oh, she looks just like your husband. I'm boiling.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Not mm-hmm. Because, because I have a son now. He looks just like his father. And I'm okay with that, right?
2: Yeah, right, right.
0: Because I at least have someone who is a mirror of me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's huge. It's huge for so many adoptees. You know, I've spoken to over 150 people on my show. And
1: look, clap for that. Can we (laughs) I need to insert like one of DJ Clue's bombs? Like that's just amazing. More than a hundred stories. I I digress.
2: (laughs) No, I appreciate that. It's a it's a project of passion and a labor of love, and I just hope to keep doing it. But you know, a lot of the adoptees have told me that very thing, that um, they they hope that the child that they bring into the world will look like them and that it is impactful to see even a person, even if they don't look like them, just the fact that they know they were there, they made that child is incredible. And uh, it can be hard for people to understand that because- I think, if we could just sidestep for a moment, one of the things that I think is really challenging for adoptees talking to lay folks, non-adoptees, is they grew up in their family, right? They know what their brother looks like as compared to their dad. They know what their sister looks like as compared to themselves. They grew up with their parents. And so it's a completely alien concept to think that a child was born to at least one parent, sometimes two, and that child was taken from that family, lifted up and inserted over here in a different family with different parents and different norms and different everything. And that's an alien concept to to place on someone who didn't grow up like that. Like Your life is supposed to happen with your family. So to even imagine that a person has a life that didn't happen with their biological family it's a really heavy lift for a non-adoptee to get their mind around right so all of that to say they're not going to have the language to say you know oh your your son looks just like you or your son looks just like your father you know his father and have the sensitivity to realize whether that can be triggering for you or not um i'm fortunate with seth in that depending on who he's standing next to is who he looks like (laughs) it's crazy he's kind of light like my wife but he's got my cheeks and you know we have similar like silly personalities and you know it's just it's just really funny to see that he is this chameleon between the two of us which i think is great you know he uh he he bonds us together in that way which is really special
1: and y'all look like y'all have such a good time on Instagram.
2: We cut up. I haven't posted anything in a <laughs> while, but y'all y'all would really crack up if you saw some of the antics inside this house, man, tell you.
1: I love it. Something that you mentioned and I think this will be important for other adoptees to really think about, almost like a paradigm shift, but when you think about search and reunion and origin stories and a lot of times the narrative that's pushed forward is oh this adoptee wants to search because they want medical history or they just want to know the name of their birth parents or or get some little tidbit of information but i think what's so special and beautiful about your story and your journey is that you really saw this generational quilt that you are a part of and that you knew that you could investigate and and really get those pieces of the quilt. So this idea of a family griot and understanding that an origin story is actually generational. So yes, there's an origin story from the time your adoptive parents bring you into that family. That's one type of origin story. There's the origin story of your birth parents, but then there's the stories behind their stories. Like you you start to put these generational pieces together. And I think for me, I would just want other adoptees to start to think about that. And hopefully it, it doesn't bring sadness because I know sometimes it can be hard to even get one layer of of an origin story let alone trying to go back for generations and generations but I wonder is is the idea that it's worth it to at least try to to go on that journey which is kind of a courageous thing to do because you don't know how it's gonna turn out. You don't know if you're going to find anything or when you're going to find anything. Sometimes it can take years. Um, but I think it's just something to be said about the beauty of finding yourself from a generational perspective, especially as black people in this country.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, let me say a couple things there. So one, you're absolutely right. I thought about sort of the family griot that I met on my father-in-law's side, and I wondered about the stories that were on my side. But there's also one of my guests, is, guests his name is Michael. He said, uh, an adoptee's story starts in chapter two, and the journey to try to reunite is taking you back to chapter one. Hmm. And if you think about the mechanics of that, it's absolutely right. So many adoptees will say, I don't have any pictures of me as an infant. I've got a picture of me sitting up as a toddler. And I. when my parents had their child, we have 100 pictures of her as an infant and on. I have no pictures of myself. I have no story that is that I think is accurate about how I came to be in this family, how I came to be available for adoption. And so there's, there's that sort of curiosity, investigative, like, let me go find out if, as much as I can about that. You touched on medical history, too. When my son was born, I have no idea what I transferred to him hereditarily. Not a clue. And I've had guests on the show say, you know, the physician's visit is triggering because the doctor will ask you just at a general practitioner visit, tell me about your family medical history. I don't know. I'm adopted. Now imagine you're going in for IVF like my wife and I did. And they're asking you, tell me about your genetic history because we want to know what your risk factors are for a healthy pregnancy here. What things we need to look out for for this child to be healthy when it's born. I don't know, right? That's incredibly challenging for a person to sit with that I don't know what's inside my body that I'm carrying that I am going to transfer to another child. I, I had a guest on the show she said that she had inherited some, she had always struggled with her health, and they couldn't figure out what the real problem was, nor how to, for lack of better words, cure it. It wasn't until she met her biological mother, and her biological mother said, Oh, we all have that. Let me send you to my specialist. And, you know, they didn't cure her, but now she's getting the accurate treatment that comes from. A lineage of people who have had that issue who have that medical history story that they are reading and able to tell to each other and able to help guide one another towards proper care you know the health thing is huge I've had several people talk about the challenges of not knowing what they're giving to their child in terms of uh, their heretic what they've inherited and and some having fear about that and others having actual medical issues that needed to be resolved and it really made them fearful angry irritated that they didn't know what to do because they didn't have that family medical history themselves Mm -hmm. um to go on with sort of the the griot quilt kind of image one of the fascinating things about my story and i'm going to jump ahead just a little bit is that when i reunited with my biological parents separately both of them were genealogists So when I met my biological mother, she was a librarian. She had already had the skills of doing the genealogical research. So I met her in September. My birthday was October. And she brought me this big, huge bag that had this photo album in it. And it was a photo album of herself in her younger years, which was awesome. Because it was everything from, you know, this sweet young girl who had had her hair permed to this militant looking, you know, Afro centric, you know, pointing her finger at the camera, like diva, you know, fighting for the fight, the power kind of thing Uh, to even a picture of herself with her pregnant belly, with me inside, you know, stuff that you never could have, you know, had, had you not gone on this courageous reunion journey to try to find that person. But the reason I bring up the album and her genealogy is because she had researched her own history, back to the days of slavery, to the point where she found a, a document for one of our relatives that indicated that he was now a free man in the courts. This is, this is connecting me back to things that I was taught in grade school about slavery, right? I got it conceptually. And I can see that of, of African Americans around me, that many of us have come from distant and far lands to you know and have you know come up gener- generationally here in America but for her to present me with a document that says here's a transaction in our family that indicates that one of us was owned by somebody and was then released to be a free person like that's a that's a serious thing to to come into your own sort of consciousness about your own family's history it was incredibly moving to see that and then I'll say too, my biological father, believe it or not, was also a genealogist. And so he had all of this documentation too. What's fascinating is she didn't have any other son or daughter. She never had any other children. I was born via C-section in the 70s. So she always had a scar on her body that indicated that I was out there in the world. So on your best day, you're getting in the shower, you still are going to be reminded that there is a child out there that you don't know. My biological father actually didn't know that I existed. And so he also, that we know of, didn't have any other children either. So I've got two genealogists who are my biological parents who are able to hand me an entire family history, an entire tree. You should have seen me on Ancestry DNA building out my family tree. I had all these names, I'm clicking and typing and putting in all, my tree blew up. I mean, within a day of meeting each one of these people, it was bananas. And it was just, it was a really fascinating grounding thing to be able to sit back from my computer and look and be like, that's my family tree. Like I got it all right there. I mean, it's just unreal.
1: And I, oh my goodness. So I remember when I was reading the book and and reading about the reunion with your your birth mom and it was so beautiful and i mean i'm in tears and you know so i want to backtrack a little bit because you have these two amazing people who coincidentally happen to be genealogists so you would think like oh if they were searching which i guess that would be more so in the case for your mom because your your birth dad didn't know that you existed but in the case of your birth mom people might wonder like, well, oh, she she would know how to search for you and find you. Um, can you talk about your uh, search process for her and, and how that ultimately uh, ended up for you guys?
2: Yeah. And remind me to come back to that part of her searching. Okay. So my search process was interesting. They're all unique. And Mine was my adopted mother had always told me, if you ever want to search, I will help you. And I was always thankful for that, but I also didn't want to do it. So it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, thanks, mom. Good looking out. I'll (laughs) let you know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just wasn't into it at the time. So when my son was born, I was into it. But my mom was departing mentally. She unfortunately was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. And so I was really concerned that this commitment that she had made throughout both of our lives to help me would not come to fruition because she was not in a mental state to handle it. Fortunately, when I reached out to her and said, I, I'd like to try to find my biological mother, can you send me, you know, some documents? She was all in. She, I mean, within two days in the mail, I had all of the documentation that she had ever collected. I knew that I was born out of Baltimore City. I contacted the city's social services agency. They assigned me a social worker. This lovely woman who told me the things before about women searching earlier and guys searching when they have their children shepherded me through the process. Her name is Lee. And Lee was just amazing. And she you know, sent me home, asked me to write a letter of introduction in case we ever find my biological mother. And I went to work one day and, you know, I've often joked, I owe the American people some money because I was working for the government that day and I didn't do any work. I sat on my government computer and I typed out a letter to my biological mother. That's right. And I, I, I typed it up and I read it and typed it and read it and, and I printed it out and I hand wrote it so that if it ever found her, she would have a sample of my handwriting too, but she would have something legible that she could actually read <laughs> And I dropped it in the mail, smacked my hands. I said, I didn't think about this for 30 some odd years. I'm not going to start obsessing over it now. Two weeks later, my social worker Lee calls me and I'm looking at my phone and I'm going, yo, she doesn't, there's no reason for her to call me unless she's got something to say. She's got news. And sure enough, she was like, we found her. I have, she has your letter. She's interested in meeting you. And Lee asked her to send me back an introductory letter. It was in that introductory letter that Lee read to me, her beautiful sort of angelic voice is whispering in my ear, uh, my mother's own words for the first time I'm here. And it was really, really sweet. And my mother's name is Anne and Anne told me in her letter that she had, you know, wanted to find me all of her life. And she had always sent positive vibes out. And anytime she got close to anybody that she felt she could trust, she would tell them, you know, if anybody comes looking for me, I want to be found. And she revealed that she had also attended Hampton University. And so she was so happy to see that I had also gone to Hampton. She told me later that uh, her own father and his brother. So my uncle, my granduncle, uh, went to Hampton too. So Hampton's in my family. And I, I never could have known that having grown up in an adopted family that had no tie to Hampton. It was crazy. So. To cut the story a little bit, I I ended up speaking with her by phone that night and we had just an instant rapport, just got along. It was so super easy, It was so cute. Her her voice shuddered and she was so emotional and she was, you know, kind of talking quietly. I could tell she was just in shock. Like, this is my son's voice on the phone. This Mm -hmm. is crazy. And coincidentally, the day after that phone conversation was her birthday. In that phone conversation, I found out that she worked in downtown DC, where I also worked in downtown DC. I asked her, you know, how do you get into town? She lived outside of even further than I did. I said, How do you get into town from way out there? She said, Well, I take the train in and then I get off at L'Enfant Plaza Metro. And I said, Shut up. I get off at L'Enfant Plaza. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh shit, I just told this lady to shut up and I haven't even met her yet. I was like, oh. I was like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. But so we had a good laugh about that. But then I said, I'm going to find this woman tomorrow. Hers her birthdays tomorrow. And she's getting off of my metro stop. And she works like two blocks away. There's no way I'm not going to find this woman. And that's what I did. I I went to work, paid attention. Oddly, I was like, I think hyper focused because I knew what I was going to be doing later. And uh, I got up at lunch and I said, I'll be back and i got in a cab and i went across and i and i i got out of the cab and i looked at the metro over there and i looked at her building right there and i kind of looked off in the distance as to i looked in the distance as to where my building was and i was like yo we are that close
1: all that time
2: yo it was unbelievable and coincidentally though not all that time i took a job in the obama administration you know my my, my wife I had hated my previous job. She said, why don't we see if we can get you a job in the next administration? hold tight. So she held us down for a while. I stayed home with my son, the job came through and it was only a couple of months after I took that job at HHS in the Obama administration that I happened to be right next to my biological mother. Mm. So it wasn't all that time. It was right in that moment. Like the universe all came together. Damon is off. He's getting a new job. He's home bond- bonding with his son. When he starts his search, he's home because I have the time to sit down, fill out the forms, go through the process. Da-da-da-da. And then I get the job. I'm now in place. That puts me two blocks away from her to, to reunite with her. So I go into her building. It was the one of the FAA federal aviation administration buildings for the department of transportation. And the security guard lets me in, tells me, you know, just head over there to that elevator, go down, get off, turn left, go to the end of the hallway, and she's down there. But she had called Ann before putting me on the elevator to say, there's a Mr. Davis here to see you. And when the guard is getting off the phone, she goes, and she hangs up. the phone. And I was like, why did you gasp? And she said, because she gasped. (laughs) And I was like, oh, like this is the real moment. Anne knows I'm here now. And I have directions to go see her. So I go, I knew I was gonna try to find her that day. So I you know, put on a suit, had a tie. I was trying to look as sharp as possible. <laughs> I'm on the elevator and it's got a reflective door, and I'm standing there like fixing myself. And I'm just like, I can't believe this is the moment. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my way down that hallway and I'm gonna go find this lady. And the door opens, bing. And this woman standing there looking at me, and I was like, Oh, oh my god, that's gotta be her. She's looking at me like, Oh my god, that's him. And I just dove on her, huge oh, wow. hug, started crying. I mean, just I whispered in her ear, happy birthday. And we just it was so oh, crazy.
1: Not like, we are just undone. Oh.
2: It was so crazy. It was so crazy. Because I'm, you know, not only am I seeing this woman looking at me like, oh, my God, that's him. But it's a woman with my face looking at me like, oh, my God, that's him. It was unreal, unreal. We went out to lunch that day. We spent, you know, an hour and something together. I I can't even tell you what we said. I have no idea what we talked about. <laughs> I was just looking at this woman like, Oh my God, my face. I look just like her. And so at the end of our lunch, we got up her office right across the street. I gave her a big hug and I, I reassured her. I was like, listen, we're good. You can call me anytime you want. You can ask me anything you want. We're good. And she thanked me. I told her I love her and she told me she loved me too. And we parted ways and I saw her the very next day for lunch and coffee. Mm-hmm. And that was how it was. It was like, dating you know you're thinking about this person you wonder what they're doing are they thinking about you i've got 55 questions i want to ask her when can i see her again you know what i'm saying it was like falling in love Mm -hmm. but it's with my biological mother whom i should have already had a connection to bonded with and loved do you see what i mean so it was this really interesting time in our lives we spent probably at least a month possibly two months just us we didn't invite anybody else into the relationship we told i told my wife but i didn't arrange for us to meet for at least two to three weeks and then i think a month after so it was weeks not months after that i said to ann are you ready to meet your grandson and she said oh yeah i think i am so i invited her over And I saw her park outside of my house and she's walking up the steps and I can see her talking to herself. She's getting herself psyched up and she's excited about the whole thing. And she really wants to meet her grandson. And she comes to the door and I had told my son, Seth, he must've been three when, when we met, uh, I said, come here. I want you to meet grandma Ann. And he comes up behind me, you know, he's shy. He's hanging on my leg and he's peeking out from behind She opens the door and she sees him down there. She didn't even look at me. (laughs) She looks down at him and he goes the other direction to try to hide. And she goes that direction so she can see him again. And these two are having a game like I'm not even there. And I was like, oh, this is going to be just fine. And she came in and she sat down and she read to him. And I'm looking at this multi-generational moment of her and me. And him,
0: mm.
2: it was amazing. It was amazing. And it's funny. I don't know if you've had this experience talking to other adoptees. And I didn't know this before, but apparently looks can sometimes skip a generation and a person's child will look like their parents. Mm. And grandma Ann and Seth look a lot lot. Wow. It's really crazy. Yeah, that was really powerful. So so that's the story of meeting her.
1: Oh, my goodness. When I tell y'all, like, hearing you explain it is amazing. I think just, you know, reading it and just seeing all the details. Like, I literally was just bawling. Like, oh, my God, I'm reading the letter. Like, the fact that you were even able to get a letter from her and she got your letter. Like, I think it was such a beautiful search story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the search for your birth father was a little bit different. So a different method, not through an agency. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did that go?
2: Yeah, that was very different. Let me stay with Ver- with Ann for just a quick moment because I, re- I just remembered what I wanted to tell you. You mentioned her being nice. a librarian having the search capability to look for me. She told me after our reunion, She said, I always wanted to search. As a matter of fact, when I relinquished you into adoption and I chose those words carefully, I didn't say gave you up because it sounds like an abandonment. And I'm trying to help as many people as possible get away from feelings of abandonment. Let me just stay there for a moment. A lot of people feel abandoned. And when I personally think of abandonment, I think of something that I've thrown away. I've left it on the side of the road. I've tossed it in the garbage. I've intentionally thrown it away. And I would say that the vast majority of a majority of birth mothers would say, I did not throw you away. I was coerced into relinquishing you. I did not feel that I could take care of you. And I chose to give you up with the hopes that you would have a better life. But that those kinds of scenarios are not a throwaway. So I just want to spend a quick second on that, because I want people to think hard about what they have abandoned in their life and realize that their birth mother did not do that to them. In most cases, they were tricked, coerced, pressured, just didn't think they could do it. But they didn't toss us. So I just, I want to underscore that. So she said to me, I wanted you back, but I knew with each passing day that you were getting closer and closer and bonded more deeply with your adopted family. And I knew that if I took you back, it would break everybody's heart. And as much as she wanted to do so, she just couldn't bring herself to do it. Mm-hmm. But when she got a little bit older, the urge was too much. And she, she started looking into how does a birth mother find their child? she got the forms filled it out just couldn't bring herself to do it just couldn't do it and i have i have no ill feelings to her for that at all because the truth is had she found me i might not have been in a place to receive her i looked for her when i wanted to do it Mm -hmm. i found her when i felt the pull my son was born I was losing my my other mother and there was space to do it. There was you know yet another prodding from my friend Kelly. There was a grio who I wanted to like there were reasons why in that moment I chose to look for her. But if she had just come into my world and I wasn't really thinking about her it could have been intrusive and it might not have gone very well. So and I've heard a lot of adoptees say that that I'm glad I searched when I did because I was strong enough within myself to be able to receive whatever happened along that search.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's on. That's enough on sort of Anne. So to go to my biological father, I asked Anne very clearly, who's my biological father? She told me it was a police officer in the city of Detroit where I was conceived. Going with that, I sought him out. Unfortunately, Ann died after six years of our relationship. It was a wonderful relationship, and unfortunately, she passed on. But I realized, you know, after when I asked her about this guy, I could feel the pain in her voice. I could sense the situation was traumatic. And I said, you know what? This has been such a wonderful reunion. There's nowhere to go but down, quote unquote, from here. Let's just stay right here and let this be the positivity that it is. And when she passed on, I said, I can't hurt her feelings now, but I am curious. So I sought this guy out, found him, wrote him a letter, introduced myself. He started calling me, saying he was going to come visit, making all these crazy like proclamations. I'm going to rent an RV and I'm going to drive to your house. And I was like, uh-oh, this dude is crazy. <laughs> Fortunately, none of that ever happened. happened. And one day I got a letter in the mail from him that basically signed off from our relationship. Dear Mr. Davis, I am not the guy you're looking for. No. that was it. And I was like, what? <laughs> Forgive me. I know how this works. And she said you were there. right?" I'm not sure how you know this is that you're not. But, you know, as a former detective, I've often wondered, did he have somebody like catch my plastic spoon in the trash and do a DNA test and like, you know, match us up secretly or, or not mm-hmm. match, whatever. So at any rate, I I was sort of heartbroken. I'm like, well, man, I'm I'm never, ever going to know who my biological father is. I can never figure out who else, you know, my mother might have been with. So I gave up. And what happened was my family started doing ancestry DNA because my mother-in-law is also adopted. So that meant we had sort of two disconnects of family history. And it was a much larger lineage because my mother-in-law had my wife, her daughter, and another daughter in her second marriage. And so it was this interesting experiment of this adoptee has given birth to two daughters with two separate fathers. What does the DNA look like on the tree with all of these, you know, sort of various people in the mix? So we started doing DNA and backstory. Anne and I had already done 23andMe. So we had already made our connection, validated it. It was solid in the face, but we wanted to see it in the science. What ended up happening was we're on Ancestry DNA one night, and I'm looking through my family's results, and I'm seeing all these interesting cool factoids. And I was like, yo, I, I didn't even look at my own DNA on Ancestry, the way they present the data and the information. So I started digging through, and I'm looking at the lines that talk about your various connections to different people. And, you know, it goes... You know, your first level, your second, your third, your fourth. And it gets more and more distant as you go down. So naturally, on my first level would be Seth, right? He's my one descendant and the only dude I know. And Ann wasn't on Ancestry. I had two connections on my first level. And the other one was these two initials. And they were not the initials of the man's name that Ann had given me. So I click on it and I'm reading it. And it tells me uh, how closely we re- related we are in Morgan's, And it says, WW is your father. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in bed going, wait a minute, what? Who was this WW dude? And so it's opened up this entire journey of trying to figure out who his cat is. So I, I messaged the account. His account is administered by someone else. I start messaging them. I said, hey, this is an important connection for me. Uh, We don't have to tell anybody we talked, but I'd really like to know who this person is. No answer. I sent another message. Listen, I'd really like to know more about this connection here. I know there are secrets out there, and I don't have to tell anybody that you and I spoke, but this is pretty important to me. I get a call back from a white woman in the South And she proceeds to tell me that her family had been doing DNA testing. And as they were doing so, their tree started to branch over into the African-American community. So they started reaching out to try to know who these people are and build out the family tree to understand more of how far their tree went. Needless to say, they used to own slaves back in their family history in the South in Kentucky. So that is how their tree spread out was because of the classic violation that we all know happened on, you know, on slave plantations. So she tells me, I know your father. He's not a police officer in Detroit. As a matter of fact, I'm expecting to see him at a family reunion pretty soon. I'll talk to him about this. And unfortunately, he didn't go to the family reunion she went but and obviously did not see him. And when she returned, her um, father got sick. And so there was this long disconnect between me connecting with her, et cetera. But she ends up connecting us and I get on the phone with him and he's totally intrigued. Pause. I sent him an introductory letter before that phone call that basically said the same thing I said to Anne when I introduced myself to her, except it was a little more formal. Like, I've got a story to tell to let you know how I got to this point. So once you've heard this to the end, let me know if you'd like to chat. And sure enough, he said yes. And so we chatted on the phone. We had a pretty good connection from the beginning too. He listened very attentively to what I was saying. And coincidentally, he lived in Las Vegas. And the next day after that first phone conversation, our family was flying to Los Angeles to go (laughs) visit my mother-in-law in in LA. So I told him, listen, we're leaving for LA tomorrow. I'm going to be in your neighborhood. If you'd like to connect, why don't we figure it out? And so my family took a day trip to go to Las Vegas to meet Bill for the first time. And I've got this great picture that my wife took of him just standing up and giving me just a big, huge hug. This stranger has come out of nowhere that he didn't know existed. And he gave me a hug as if he hadn't You know, we knew each other all our lives and he hadn't seen me in a year. You know what I mean? It was just really warm, heartfelt emotion that I truly appreciated. And like I said, he was a genealogist. So when we went back to his house, man, he just unloaded, just family history pictures of himself. And ironically, he pulls out this picture of himself in the air force. And my adopted father was also in the air force. So It was funny because the third guy who was not the right dad, he was in the army. So it was like this weird, like, ah, he's in the army. He's not one of us. We're Air Force guys. (laughs) You know what I mean? But when I saw this picture of him in the Air Force, it was an amazing resemblance to myself, like more so than Ann. If I showed you this picture, you'd be like, yo, yeah, I see that. It's really crazy. So I walked out of there with just an extensive family history, pictures of a guy whom I didn't even think I would ever meet in my entire life. Yet here I am with a photo of him where I look exactly like him. It was just mm. amazing. And just one more thing on him. You know, he's driving us to the airport at the end of this day trip. And he's, he, he's this sort of moment of contemplation and he, his thoughts come out verbally and he says, man, she must've been so alone. I wish she could have told me. And it was just a real poignant moment of sensitivity for someone else's plight and the choices that they made that he didn't know he was a part of it it, in juxtaposition with my experience with the other guy it was just this welcome warmth and empathy for my biological mother who was no longer there to receive it so i got it it was just it was really powerful and it, it spoke volumes about him as a person that i found just really powerful and vulnerable and, and awesome.
1: Your stories are just so amazing because I know <laughs> that's not every adoptees' reunion experience, but that's when a, you hear a, it, you know, not just one reunion that went really, really well, but two reunions that have yeah. gone really beautifully well. Yeah. Um, it's like, what, what more could you ask for?. I know. Um, and I think for me, when I hear your story, I just think about divine timing. You know, there were so many instances of divine timing with the birth of your son and, and the new job and and not searching at the time when she wanted to search. And I just feel like sometimes the universe, God, who can be so kind, you know, like just, very kind to align everything in that way.
2: Yeah Um, but conversely as you've alluded to everybody's story doesn't go that well. mm -hmm. Mine is like I've considered myself to be on the far end of the scale of good reunions. Good adoption and good reunion. I frequently talk about the adoption and reunion experience from the perspective of sort of good adoption, good adoptions and bad reunions and bad adoptions of good reunions and every variation there. And, you know, you start to throw in transracial, interracial, religious, you know, different geographic areas. You know, we've got people who are adopted from other countries who come to the United States and they are, you know, transracially adopted. So there's this intercontinental, I mean, you throw all of that in the mix and everybody's story is different. And this is why I started the podcast because I would tell people my story with such excitement for what my experience had been that I would have to catch myself when they would say, oh man, that's really great, but unfortunately I don't think that's gonna happen for me. And it was sobering to sit with them and hear before New York's records were opened. You know, I, I've been to the building where New York houses its birth records and I could never go in that room And all that information in there about me is for me and I can't have it. Or I would hear people say, oh, my adoption was awful. My mother was a narcissist and she should never have been a mother. I wouldn't even, if I was somebody, you know, consulting her, I never, I wouldn't have told her to get a dog, right? All of this stuff that made their adoption awful. And and I've talked to people who have had these awful reunions and rejection and, horrible things said and done to them and it was through conversing with other adoptees that i realized we all have a story to tell and they're all so drastically different and they're not out there enough and so at the time i started my podcast i had been searching for adoptee related stories but anytime you put an adoption in a podcast app you would get stuff about parents adopting children so I saw Haley Radke's Adoptees On podcast, and I was like, all right, cool. That means this is legit. If one person's out there doing what you thought of doing and they're going for it, you've got something. And so I decided I would go ahead and pursue the podcast. And I'm so grateful for everybody who's ever been a guest um, to have made the show what it is. And to everybody listening you know, across the country and around the world, it's just so fulfilling to help other people have these moments of opening up to another adoptee in a way that they haven't before. Cause they don't have the people in their lives who can truly empathize with the story they're telling mm-hmm. with the feelings they're feeling. They can't legitimize it and, and ask the questions from a position of sensitivity that acknowledges what they're feeling and how they've been treated and what their desires and goals are. So these adoptee podcasts, yours too, are incredibly important because they allow us to bring our voices forward in a way that is uniquely our own as adoptees.
1: Thank you. And I think something that's even um, unique, even for you, you're you're kind of like a triple unicorn because you're, you're an adoptee, but you're a male adoptee and you're a black male adoptee. Do you get a lot of feedback from other male adoptees and black male adoptees because it's, it's a space where you just do not hear voices like yours even yeah.
2: yeah, it's true. And this is something that I've often advocated for. I'll, I will, during National Adoption Awareness Month, I have done male adoptee voices focused groups to try to bring some of the fellas out because as we acknowledged in the beginning, we're not necessarily as open, as emotive, as, as, as deeply engaged in our own feelings. And, and it's important for us to do so. You know. And, and, and men frequently need an avenue through which to do that. And so by lifting up other guys to say, here are three other dudes who are telling their story and we're laughing, joking, crying along the way together, I'm hopeful that I can inspire other men to share their stories. Um, you're right, there, there's a dearth of black males out here speaking, but there's a dearth of, of men in general. I analyzed my audience. I keep a spreadsheet of all my guests. 70 to 75% of them are women.
0: Mm-hmm. So- on, on par, yeah. On par for sure. That's right. For sure. So. <laughs> I feel like a key word tonight is the (laughs) story. Like that just kept coming out. And as I was listening to you, adoptees, we want to be in the place of being free and open to share our stories. But I just keep going back to what you were saying about like having stories from other people. Mm -hmm. So again, for anyone that's listening that has in some way been touched by the adoption experience, recognizing that an adoptee only has the portion of the story. And so if we ever come into contact with you and you have a piece of our story, please share it you know, <laughs> with us. We need those things in order to be able to piece together this, this blanket. Um, If you will. And so when people deny us those little pieces of information, we don't even get our full story. And so I really appreciated what you stated about also with the search and reunion process for adoptees, determining what's right for you and whether or not you're entering a search and reunion for the right reasons. And that takes a certain amount of self-awareness because I And I'm just thinking back on my own process. Like, I took a long time before (laughs) digging into it. Um, But I have no regrets, you know, about the amount of time. Like, you have to do it when it feels good to you. So that way, you can also be receptive to whatever the story is. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have a magnificent story. And it's like, you know, as you stated, everyone's story isn't the same. So if you're an adoptee and you have a, a circumstance that, you know, might be, it's not the best, you know, you have to be prepared to hear, but it's still your story. That's right. And there's no shame in it being a part of your story, mm-hmm. right? So I, I really appreciated that. And the other piece too, that really resonates with me is how you waited with your relationship with Ann mm-hmm. and you didn't invite people in right away. And I think think when we hear adoptee conversations about social reunion like everybody wants you to be a part of this thing and you know you almost like immediately open yourself up and I think what you stated about saying like hey let me take this thing a little bit slower was super intentional and again really going back to am I doing this for the right reasons is this the right time yeah so yeah there's takeaways for me
2: Yeah, there's a there's a lot in there with regard to the intentionality of being alone with the person whom you've sought. And a lot of times the energy and inertia of this reunion overflows onto other people and they want they're excited. They Mm -hmm. I can't believe we found you. And this is amazing. And we're going to have a party or we're going to get everybody together. Or, you know, we'll immediately have a family reunion and all of these strangers are around you. And all you want to do is be with this one person that you've been seeking. And so I frequently will tell adoptees, you know, make sure you create space for just you two to be alone. If there's a party, like pull them aside and spend some time, whatever the thing is. And, you know, relatives don't mean to be harmful in the reunion, but they're so excited to see you and, 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 and push the reunion together and make you welcome that it actually can be unintentionally alienating because you've not met your own goal. Your goal was to meet that biological parent, that mother, that father. Um, but now the uncles, aunts, sisters and brothers and everybody else you know, are there too. And it puts undue pressure on a relationship that you haven't even cultivated yet. I don't even know if I like this person. I don't even know if they like me. I don't know if we get along yet. I'm standing here and in, in a, you know, in a surprise family reunion or whatever the thing is, it, it's, it can be too much. And, and so I think it's important to try to find that intentionality in the reunion to make sure that you sort of hone in on what you need and, and similarly hone in on knowing when you need to take a break. Right. If, oh, yeah. if you, yeah, if you are being overwhelmed by your emotions, there's, there are stories of your origin coming at you. There is the emotion with which it is told by the person in the moment that you're hearing it. There is your desire to even sort of fathom the story that's being told, process it and take it in and then react to it. Like all of that stuff is very, very heavy and it requires some work to get through. And I think you just you have to sort of pause and allow those things to be ingested, to take them in. And that might not be something you can do sitting face to face with someone else. You might need a break. So some people will say, you know, I reunited with my biological mother and I stayed with her at her apartment. Other people are like, I got a hotel room because I knew I was going to need the space. And I think, you know, everybody has to figure out who they are in that situation and figure out what's going to work for them, but create space for yourself to be alone.
1: I think those are excellent distinctions and points. Thank you so much for just opening yourself up to us, to our listeners you know, we will sit and talk to you all night because <laughs> you are a wealth of information. Ain't you got this soothing voice, like, <laughs> like, we could just be all here. Damon after dark. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I do wanna just close out on one final question. Certainly. You, you had to know that we were going to ask this. Damon, who are you? Really? <laughs> we wanna know.
2: Hey, I'm an adoptee. I'm a black man. I'm a father and family man. And I'm a podcaster who's helping to bring the stories of other adoptees out. And it's really a project of passion for me, like I said. And And I'm so grateful to folks like you who are also cultivating an audience. There's, there's so many stories out there. I, I promise you, I wish I could tell every single one, help the adoptee tell all of them. But I can't and you can't. But we all have our certain places where we're able to uplift others. And I think that this is the value of what you guys offer on the show that you guys have put together. You know, Black to the Beginning is an intentional focus on Black adoptees. And that's a very power, powerful place to be. And I and I appreciate you guys offering a space for us to come, up, come forward and speak our minds and our hearts.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We humbly receive that. It has been an honor and a pleasure speaking with you. You too. Thank you all for listening. It has been another riveting episode (laughs) of Black to the Beginning. We'll see y'all next time. Peace y'all. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Black to the Beginning, the Black Adoption Podcast with Dr. Sam and Sandria. If you want more Black to the Beginning, Follow at BlackToTheBeginning and hashtag BlackAndAdopted on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If
0: you would like to share your Black adoption experience, check out our Instagram at BlackToTheBeginning and click the link in our bio.
1: Remember, the Black adoption conversation is the Black family conversation. These discussions can be difficult, but necessary for generational healing. Let's keep the conversation going for the culture.